Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome back to the Nursery Podcast. Today, we are delighted to be joined uh, by Ali Razai. Ali, if you will, uh, is the ultimate neurosurgeon in terms of dealing with these concepts of the mind and in this mini-series on cognition. I remember Ali from uh, my early days at USC. He then went on to do further training at uh, NYU and then ran the functional neurosurgery program at Cleveland Clinic. Ali then took on a larger role, if you will, uh, as a head of neuroscience at Ohio State, and now he does that at West Virginia. So if you were to really talk about what that means, the idea, Ali, if I can be so bold, is to say that if you're a director of neuroscience, you're thinking about not just neurosurgery, but also psychiatry, neurology, and all the other sort of attendant-related specialties with neurosurgery, right? Uh, Is that correct? Exactly. And uh, pleasure to be on with you guys. And so really, um, the, as, as a neuroscience institute, you're dealing with neuroradiology and you're dealing with basic neuroscience or foundational neuroscience, psychiatry, behavioral medicine, neurology, physical medicine, rehabilitation, and neurosurgery. So it's the collective group that defines broadly the management of individuals with neurological disorders, whether it's cognitive, whether it's motor, sensory, emotional, behavioral, and all the aspects of recovery from these conditions, and that defines the Institute. And to me, that wider perspective that you have to have allows you to tackle sort of the the larger problems that we really do face as human beings and doctors, right? And so we want to talk in depth about that today. And and I know that you've done all manner of functional neurosurgery. I remember watching you when you were at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, You had done a number of of very important uh, pieces in the popular press about movement disorders. But you've gone far beyond that now, right? You've started to explore some other areas uh, like addiction and Alzheimer's disease, right? Do you want to tell us about your journey and getting there? Sure. And I think as neurosurgeons, it's important for us to keep on expanding our domains in neurosurgery. And functional neurosurgery allows you to expand that. And as a functional neurosurgeon, um, you have a unique opportunity to be a neurosurgeon who have to be an expert, who have to have expertise in anatomy, phys- imaging, physiology, surgery, neurology, psychiatry. And um, you basically have many techniques at your disposal, lesioning the brain like you do with radio frequency or gamma knife or now with ultrasound or modulating electrical, chemical, ultrasound, biological delivery of agents. So um, the functional neurosurgery really affords itself to new innovations. And we have to expand in neurosurgery beyond our current armamentarium of therapies and go more towards areas like Alzheimer's or addictions or uh, treatments uh, of stroke and recovery from stroke beyond the initial endovascular treatments that we have. So for me, uh, it's been um, an opportunity to collaborate with neurologists and psychiatrists and other specialists. And I think that collaboration, it's fundamental for all neurosurgeons and particularly functional neurosurgeons, because without partnership with neurologists, psychiatrists, rehabilitation experts, you will not be able to succeed and have a team. And some of the areas um, where I've had the opportunity when I was at Cleveland Clinic in the early uh, 
2000, late 90s, uh, we started working with psychiatrists and looking at uh, deep brain stimulation for obsessive compulsive disorder. The first implant for that was done in Europe by Bart Nutan and published an article in Lancet in 1998 with a brain implant in the um, nucleus accumbens and ventral capsule for OCD. So we started that journey for DBS for OCD, and then we performed trials for DBS for depression. So that's really applying DBS from a movement disorder domain, which is the most common application towards more emotional behavioral domains. And then we did the um, DBS for minimally conscious states and people in severe TBI um, in terms of awakening of the mind uh, using thalamic DBS in the intralaminar nuclei. And then when I went to Ohio State, I had the opportunity to work closely with uh, very top-notch rehabilitation specialists and, and biomedical engineers. And we started looking at brain-computer interface, um, doing these implants that are arrays of 100 microimplants that go into motor cortex that allows you to decode the cortical signals and re-encode them into a, a prosthetic device or a sleeve in this case that we developed that allows the quadriplegic to use their thoughts to move their arms and do multiple movements, including holding up a cup of coffee or playing guitar here and so on. So at, at Ohio State, um, again, it was collaborating with the expertise that was in that university, very important. So without expert partners, it's very difficult to achieve success. And I think this field of brain-computer interface has tremendous interest for all neurosurgeons. It just awakens your curiosity and Elon Musk with Neuralink has gotten to this field, which is also good because it will accelerate it in the um, air supply in terms of interest and the, the money that can be poured into this. So I think he will expand this field beyond just the research to more maybe uh, practical clinical application and accelerate that path. Now, sir, I, I want to earmark that, and before this conversation ends, we have to discuss Neuralink and the potential to expand the cognitive capacity of the human brain and the human mind with uh, intervention and implants. But before we start drilling down into these technical details, uh, typically when we have these conversations, I rein myself in and I save the philosophical and the out there questions for towards the end of things to wrap up. But I'm so excited to talk to you. I, I read, I've read the New York Times article about your work with Brain Machine Interface. I've watched your TEDx talk, and I heard you talk about what inspired you to take this direction with your career, about improving lives and function, not just saving them uh, when you treated trauma patients. And so thinking about all of these interventions that you've developed, these devices and implants that you've helped to develop, and these unique targets for uh, intervening in disorders of the mind, not merely the brain. I am very interested specifically with you, sir, to ask, where do you see that divide between the brain and the mind? From your perspective, uh, as someone who practices the art of medicine the way you do, where is that line, or, or do you think there is a line between the brain and the mind? No, I think it's, it's a continuum in terms of um, the brain and the mind. I mean, these are all networks uh, that are impacted, and you know, you're talking about for example, motor networks, uh, sensory networks, you have the, uh, that are impacted in chronic pain or brain computer interface or visual circuits or the um, cognition, uh, the emotions, the behavior. Um, all these, I think, are together 
there is a there's no difference in my opinion. It's all linked together. And I think in neurosurgery we have a great opportunity to tackle some of these complex conditions that affect so many people. And really, um, it's looking at the entire brain networks, motor, sensory, cognitive, emotional, the whole combination of those that are important, in my opinion. So, Ali, tell us tell us a little bit more about the exciting technologies that you're employing, because I think that, you know, we've had some great guests on this mini-series talking about what they're doing with um, deep brain stimulation. I'd like to go a little deeper into focused ultrasound before we come back to Elon Musk. So, tell us about what that does uh, and, and how it can be utilized or leveraged in the field of functional neurosurgery. Right. So, ultrasound, um, as you know, Mike, has been around for many years and even um, Lexcel, uh, going back to many years ago when he he actually was interested in using ultrasound for treatments. But uh, the technology was not developed enough at that time. So then they went into radiation and other, using gamma knife, for example, and other technologies that developed. But I think uh, ultrasound is one of those very uh, interesting and emerging technologies, in my opinion, that I've been involved with for the past five years. And I think this is going to be a potential uh, significant um, innovation that will be used by more and more neurosurgeons. And ultrasound, uh, basically, focused ultrasound involves um, delivering ultrasound energy. In this case, we use the uh, current FDA-approved system that's used for lesioning, so it's called the Incitec system. But basically, it's a helmet that is attached to, that, to an MRI machine, and the helmet comes over your head, and you, wear, you put a stereotactic head frame on, and allows you to deliver over 1,000 ultrasound uh, energy probes that deliver the ultrasound energy travels through your skin, through your skull, through the dura, and through the brain, and it converges at any point that you dial in in the brain with millimeter precision. And the benefits are that it allows you to do several things. One is you can do a lesion by using a high-intensity focused ultrasound that creates a lesion. And that's the thermal lesion, and you can see it on the MRI live as the ultrasound is creating a lesion and look at for improvements in tremor, in this case for Parkinson's tremor or central tremor. The second application, which is very exciting that we've been looking at, is coupling the ultrasound to infusion of microbubbles intravenously that allows you to open up the blood-brain barrier on demand and reversibly. And the third application is the neuromodulation where you give low dose ultrasound to cause neuromodulation without making a lesion. So these are the three applications that I think will dramatically uh, advance neurosurgery because it's non-invasive and it uses an MRI as a therapeutic tool as well as an imaging tool. Sir, talk, talk more if you could about that second application you mentioned, the intravenous introduction of bubbles uh, to break down the blood, vein, uh, the blood brain barrier. What, uh, with delivering ultrasound to a targeted area, what benefit does that give you um, mechanically, I, I guess, introducing this energy form? Is this for lesioning? Is this for uh, what sort of diseases are we treating with that? Yeah, good question. So all of the above. So you can use a higher intensity ultrasound system, what's called the HIFU, high intensity focused ultrasound, in short, HIFU. And that uses a higher intensity to make a lesion in the morothalamus, for example, to stop the tremors for Parkinson's disease and essential tremor. And that's FDA approved now for both those indications. 
Um, and that ultrasound um, application is standard and routine. And um, patients, there's no skin incisions and patients go home same day and the results are as good as deep brain stimulation. So that's the most common application is high-intensity focused ultrasound or HIFU for creating a, a, a lesion. And as you're creating the lesion in the brain, the patient is awake, lying in the MR table with the ultrasound helmet on them. And you also do live MR thermometry so you can see the lesion forming live on, in the brain and you can control the temperature. You can shape the lesion and it's targeted stereotactically with the precise X, Y, and Z three-dimensional coordinates. And that's the most routine application is lesioning. Now, I had the fortune of during uh, my medical school rotation as a fourth year, I did a uh, sub-internship at UVA when Dr. Jeff Elias was just getting the ultrasound program off the ground there. And here at Rush, where I'm training now, uh, Dr. Sani, one of my attendings, is, is just starting an ultrasound program as well. I wonder, as this technology moves from its infancy into a more mature stage, um, personally, at, at my stage of training, I haven't interacted with these machines, and I haven't been involved in the planning or the delivery of this energy form. Are there any technical nuances or differences between this and either mechanical or thermal or uh, radiation-based lesioning technologies that differ what areas of the brain or what structures you can target? Or is this yet another form of uh, energy delivery that is just looking for the right targets? This is, um, well, the, the, the technique is the same in terms of stereotaxis, where you uh, apply a head frame to the patient, and then you, using MR imaging, you can locate anywhere in the brain with millimeter precision. So that's the same, same framework as with all different lesioning procedures, and gamma knife, for example. But in this case, the ultrasound waves are um, non-invasive and um, you deliver just a higher dose of the ultrasound to sort of a, enough energy that causes a thermal increase in temperature in the brain. So you go from normal temperature to 45 degrees, you do a test temperature in this to see if there's any reduction in tremor and improvements in symptoms or side effects. If there's side effects, for example, if you're too lateral, you're, you're close to the capsule, you move a little medial. If you're too posterior in the thalamus, you may get close to the sensory nucleus, you'll get tingling paresthesia, so you move forward. If you're too ventral, you may get dysarthria or dysmetria, so you move up. And then once you like that test temperature, then you go and make a lesion at 56 to 60 degrees, and the tremor stops live on the table, and that's the most common application. Ali, can you talk to us about Alzheimer's disease as well, because it's such an important disease, right? And so scary for so many people out there. What are you doing for Alzheimer's disease? That's the second applications of the ultrasound. So as compared to lesioning, the second broad category is opening up the blood-brain barrier. So Charles, uh, Alzheimer's, as you know, it is a big problem. Over 5 million Americans have Alzheimer's. And um, every minute or so in this country, somebody gets diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And there's many other diseases like Lewy by dementia, vascular dementia. So it's a big problem. And one in three seniors die with some form of dementia. So it's a big problem without a cure. So it's important for neurosurgeons to uh, explore technologies or ways to tackle Alzheimer's because the numbers are very large and growing. No cure. Same thing as we tried to do with GBMs. Same thing as we try, we need to do and expand our scope for addiction and other areas. 
And uh, with Alzheimer's, um, there's a progressive uh, neurological condition like Parkinson's. So you get cognitive decline, problems with memory, problem with so problem solving skills are impacted. Uh, Multi-step task plannings are impacted, changes in personality and behavior. So it really impacts all aspects of life involved with cognition and function, really awareness of your environment, surroundings, and processing of memory and knowing where to get from one, dip, one area to the other. And fundamentally, it affects the entire brain. If it's in the frontal lobe more, you get more behavioral changes, personality changes. If it's more in the parietal lobe, precaneous areas, uh, some of these uh, sensory processing centers, you have more trouble finding your way around or knowing, going, getting from one place to the other. And of course, one of the most common sites is hippocampus and the memory and cognitive circuits, which are de devastated with Alzheimer's. So this condition affects the entire brain. Um, so it's a big problem impacting so many circuits and networks. So what we're doing now is we started the first in the U.S. trial for Alzheimer's in 2018, where we um, targeted the hippocampus. In this case, we got FDA approval, and it's in partnership with a company in SciTech, which is the FDA-approved company for lesioning. But it's not a lesion with ultrasound. It is a lower dose. The doses are... Uh, one-tenth the dose that we give for tremor lesioning. So it's a very small dose. It's a different system, lower activity system. And what we do is we inject microbubbles. Microbubbles are used for uh, cardiac imaging. And intravenous microbubbles, you inject it, and the microbubbles are, are circulating through your vessels. Then they're also in your brain vessels. And then the part of the brain that you deliver the ultrasound energy the acoustic energy causes these microbubbles to oscillate, and that oscillation temporarily opens the blood-brain barrier, allowing for serum and contents from the vessels to get into the interstitium of the brain. And a lot of preclinical studies have shown in animal models that the mere opening of the blood-brain barrier in, in Alzheimer's animals models has resulted improvements in in the behavioral function of the animals and a dramatic reduction in the beta amyloid plaques in the brain. And so that's always the, that was the reason why we wanted to do the study in humans. And you may ask, what's the mechanism for this? And there's a lot of hypothesis. The mechanism is that by opening the blood-brain barrier, uh, you're activating microglia and immune cells that are clearing up the beta amyloid and the um, all the byproducts of Alzheimer's. It may have a uh, sort of a power wash, if you want to call it that, uh, mechanism in the brain where you're clearing out um, these plaques. And also, uh, we just published a study that shows that it activates the glymphatics in the brain. And uh, so there's an interesting mechanism. But what we can do is open the blood-brain barrier within minutes on demand using the ultrasound coupled microbubble injection. And then the blood-brain barrier closes within 24 hours because you can't have it open all the time. And so we have a study now, we've done 15 patients in this, and this is the uh, is a three-site study. Uh, it's ourselves here at West Virginia University, Cornell University, Mike Caplet, and Vibor Krishna at Ohio State University, three-center trial in the U.S. And um, we're now, um, the first patient was, was had the procedure in October of 2018, and her Alzheimer's seems stable as compared to a natural history cohort in comparison. And 
We've done one-year follow-up PET scans that show a reduction in beta amyloid plaques in hippocampus in the targeted region. So A, opened the blood-brain barrier, B, closed it, safe and reversible on demand. And it seems to be potentially stabilizing the progression of Alzheimer's or the symptoms rather, and potentially seems to be um, reducing the beta amyloid plaques. Well, when thinking about um, surgery to treat disorders of the mind, uh, all of the data you just presented are obviously impressive, promising, and, and we can't wait to see what comes next as more patients are treated and you follow those patients for longer. But this gives us a natural springboard back to something you mentioned earlier, um, Neuralink, Elon Musk's new experimental and somewhat uh, unknown company uh, compared to his other ventures. You know, as we discuss treating the disorders of cognition and those patients who fall below the normal, perhaps these same techniques could be applied to augment normal cognition and elevate the cognitive function of normal human subjects. Um, in what ways has your work intersected with that, or to what degree can you comment on specifically Neuralink and, and those planned implants or these uh, kinds of interventions and implants in general? That's a great question. And I think Neuralink, it's interesting because there is a, uh, a very influential person, Elon Musk, who's been a pioneer in SpaceX and electrical cars. So now he's putting efforts behind this in terms of the brain-computer interface. And I think the key area with this is that we have been doing brain-computer interface for motor conditions. Those are simple to see. Somebody who's got quadriplegia cannot move a hand or arm, or somebody who's got a stroke, for example. Um, going back, going further towards cognitive and behavioral conditions, those are much more difficult because motor conditions are easy to see the changes. If you have a tremor, you can watch it stop. There it is. So you can see if you got improvements. Much more difficult to evaluate cognition, much more difficult to evaluate behavioral, emotional issues like um, addiction, depression, anxiety, etc. So I think the, the motor application it has to be the first because it's this the easiest to observe. But I think Elon Musk is going to accelerate this. This brain-computer interface has been going on for more than 20 years, but it has not been accelerated. It's been it's very tedious, requires enormous teams, and I think Neuralink perhaps can further accelerate the evolution of this. And I think the technology they're developing is the delivery of these electrodes. Um, the system of the delivery is very elegant. So I think this potentially allows us to deliver these microelectrodes to much larger areas of the brain uh, versus just putting in the motor cortex. But I have to say, I think this technology still needs a lot of work. And this decoding the brain and re-encoding it is very complicated for just a simple movements. And imagine now going beyond movements to um, having cognitive function. It's much more complicated than a flicker of a muscle, flexion extension of a muscle. Of course. And do you think the early stages of technologies like these or attempts at technologies and interventions like these, um, or at least what, what's extant in the field today, are, are we talking about implants or interventions that will functionally improve the cognitive performance of an individual, uh, for example, bringing information to the subject more rapidly than reading by eye? Or are we talking about actually improving the subjective cognitive experience of that patient? Yeah, I think, I think we're 
far away from the cognitive experience that I mean, in terms of augmenting the cognition, I think that requires a lot more work. I still think that this Neuralink and brain computer interface, the initial application that needs to be worked out is motor applications. And I think jumping into the cognitive domain, we are able to, pro let me just back up. We're, we're all able to process the thinking. So um, for example, in the work that we've done, you can, the individual, they're thinking about movements. So you're, you are able to detect the thoughts, but the, those thoughts are linked to the motor cortex and premotor areas. They're much more, they're, it's much easier to decipher those thoughts and link those towards flexion extension versus now linking it to um, uh, interacting with the computer using your mind. I, I think it requires a lot more work, but at a, at a basic minimum, we can decode those thoughts and re-encode them towards movement of objects. That has been shown for many years. It needs to be accelerated. So I think Neuralink is going to accelerate this because this field has not had a sort of a catalyst. So I think this Neuralink is going to catalyze it and increase the investments and the venture capitalists will be more interested. That's kind of industry coming in will drive it because industry has not been interested in this technology up to now. And I think that's going to be the change because without an industry coming in, it's very difficult for individual universities or groups to get far in this and globalize this. So thinking about that, Ali, you know, Elon has made a lot of buzz in his discussions to the lay public about the singularity. And, and by that, I don't mean the black hole singularity. I mean the AI singularity. What is your opinion about that? Does that, does that frighten you? Does that strike you as an opportunity where functional neurosurgeons are going to allow human beings to survive extinction? You must have some philosophical ruminations on this. Yeah, I think, you know, this always comes up about, you know, augmentation and, um, implanting electrodes in different parts of the brain and improving behavior or getting a, a, a better overall human being. I think um, those are still in the theoretical domains. We have to really focus on patients and uh, people who are suffering from a stroke or having quadriplegia from a spinal cord injury or Alzheimer's and others. And I think that uh, the technology needs to be leveraged for, in, for patients versus trying to augment individuals. That's very well put. Well, thank you, Ali, for your uh, wonderful discussion today. Thank you for joining us as a guest on the Neurosurgery Podcast, and we hope to have you back again soon. Thank you. Take care. And Elon, if you're listening, we'll talk to you anytime. <laughs>